So uh, I've shared this with you before, but when uh, I was 15, I gave my life to Christ. And uh, I didn't come from a church background. So um, I kind of walked into this Christianity thing with, with kind of no context. And I, I didn't know how things were done in the church. And um, one of the things that I knew nothing about was the idea of evangelism. I mean, that just, I'd never even heard the word. It meant nothing to me. Uh, but when I came to Christ, I, I'm this new believer who's pretty much ignorant biblically and theologically and in every other way. But I found it very natural to begin to share with people around me about my relationship with Christ. Uh, and what I discovered was, some people, I just, you know, obviously I don't know the Bible, I don't know theology, so I'm just telling them what God has done in my life in, in the last few weeks when I came to meet him. And some people responded to that in a real positive way, and they kind of embraced that. And some people did not embrace it in a positive way, and there was kind of some pushback, and you've probably experienced that. And I, I realized, well, you know, sharing... Your faith can be a little bit of a complicated thing, and it's good to be prepared to know how to do that. But then I started going to church, and I was going to church, and the pastor was doing a series on evangelism. And kind of the first message I got was, I was completely incompetent when it came to sharing my faith, because I didn't know the four spiritual laws, and the five things you should never do, and the seven verses you should always use, and the eight things you should always say. I knew none of this stuff. So I started going to church, and taking notes, and you know, writing down stuff, and memorizing passages passages and how to do this. And, and I kind of went to this place within about six months where I realized, well, I thought evangelism was just kind of this natural thing that you did with the people you knew to kind of being in church and realizing it's very complicated. In fact, it's kind of like rocket science, you know? And then if, uh, if you found that church has made evangelism um, difficult for you, you haven't even begun to scratch the surface. You want to go to a Bible college and take a class on evangelism. I mean, whoever thought of this, I don't know. You go to Bible college, you pay tuition to take a class on personal evangelism, where you go to a professor who's a professional, and, and you read textbooks, and you memorize, and you take tests. This isn't the craziest thing I've ever heard of. You take tests, and you're graded on how to share the gospel with other people. I mean, it will just do wonderful things to you, psychologically, (laughs) when it comes to sharing your faith. At the Bible college I went to, one uh, one of the things that we would do once a year is we would have these days of evangelism scariest thing. I had no idea. All I knew was we didn't have to go to classes that day, so that sounded really cool. But then that morning you go to chapel, and what you find out is we're going we're gonna to divide up into, into pairs, and we're going to go out into neighborhoods, and we're going to knock on the doors of complete strangers, and we're going to share Christ. And that's kind of, you know, how we, that, for some people that was almost like the final for that class. So I thought it was bad enough that I would have to go with another student and go door to door and knock on the doors of people I didn't know and share Christ with them, even though I knew nothing about them. But then I ended up getting paired somehow, I don't know how, uh, with my Greek Hebrew teacher. So the first door that we go to is an Orthodox Jew. And within three minutes, they're just talking Hebrew. And I'm completely out of the loop, 100%. And all I remember that day was going back to the dorm and thinking, this evangelism thing is absolutely petrifying. It's, it's, it's just mind-numbing. And for the next 10 years, I, I'll have to tell you, my view of evangelism was, it's complicated, it's technical, it's difficult, it's not any fun. And that's the way I thought about evangelism. Very complicated. And maybe you've had some experiences like that. And then about 10 years later, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm reading a book 
Um, it's called uh, The Master's Plan for Making Disciples by a, a father-son pastoral te- uh, team, Wynn and Charles Arn are their last names. And they wrote this whole book on making disciples. And I thought, well, that sounded pretty interesting. And in this book, basically, it's uh, kind of a bait and switch. You think it's about discipleship, but it's actually about evangelism. So I begin to read this book. And in this book, they present uh, what they call the oikos approach to evangelism. So as I said before, if you've been a gateway for a while, this, is, this first part will be reviewed for you. And if you haven't, uh, hold on really tight and we'll try to kind of get you on board with what we're talking about. So in oikos approach to evangelism, now oikos is a word you find all over the New Testament. It's a Greek word. And the word in the Greek means household, or we today might more appropriately say it means extended household. It's the word oikos. Say that with me. Oikos. Let's say it again. Oikos. So now you know some Greek. And if anybody ever asks you, do you know what that word is in the Greek? Just say oikos. They'll have no idea what you're talking about, and they'll figure you do. So it's a Greek word, and it means household. But we might think extended household because back today when you say household, most people think ge- a geographic location. So if I was to, uh, someone asked me, who, who is in your household? Who's in your oikos? I'm an American. I think geography. So I'd think, okay, let's see, in my house— it's my wife, and I have three kids, and I have a cat, and I have a fish. So that, that's who's in my, my oikos. But, but back then, during the days of Jesus and, and the Apostle Paul and Peter, when you said, who's in your oikos, who's in your household, they didn't think geography. They thought a web of relationships. They thought about people that they had a, a loving, caring, influential relationship with. So, for instance, they may say, oh, well, um, let's see, my family's in my oikos. They live in my house with me. But you might say, well, my, my parents live, uh, you know, a couple of cities over, but we see them all the time, and we have a very loving, influential relationship. And so um, I would classify them as being in my oikos. And you might say, we have a neighbor across the street, and uh, we have a very close, loving relationship with them, so uh, they would be in my oikos. And I, I've got uh, somebody that I work with, or somebody that I go to school with, or somebody I'm, an, I'm on a team with, and we know each other really well, and we kind of do life together. And, and they're in my oikos. So that word oikos, if you want to melt it all down, we're just talking about people with whom you have a loving, caring, and influential relationship with. So studies say that the average Christian has anywhere between 8 to 16 people in their oikos. 8 to 16 people with whom you have a loving, caring, influential relationship. And on average, you've got about six non-Christians in that oikos. So you've got some believers and some unbelievers, and they tell us, not surprisingly, that when you first come to Christ, on average, you have nine unbelievers in your oikos, and after you've been a Christian for a long time, you have maybe two, maybe, and that's probably not surprising. But in the New Testament, you see this word oikos all over the place. Now, you don't see it if you don't read the Bible in the Greek, but when you see words like family or words like household, those, are, those usually come from the Greek word oikos. And it's the most common way um, that the gospel was spread in the New Testament. There's a story in Mark chapter 5 about Jesus. He's, he's traveling one day, and he comes in contact with this demon-possessed man. You may remember the story. He's, this guy, he's completely out of his mind. He's possessed by demons. He's living in a graveyard. And nobody will get near this guy. And Jesus comes by one day and he's like, oh, well, that guy's got a demon. And he casts a demon out. And the guy comes in his right mind and he, he decides, well, I want to follow Jesus Christ, which only makes sense. So he goes to Jesus and says, I want to follow you. I want to be one of your disciples. But Jesus says to him, he says, I want you to go home to your, now in your Bible, it'll say the word family. 
But it comes from the Greek word oikos. So Jesus is saying to him, I want you to go home to your oikos, to the people with whom you have a loving, caring, influential relationship, because those people need to know what God has done for you. You see, those people may not listen to a preacher. Those people may not listen to an evangelist, but they know you. If you go home and you say, hey, remember me? Remember what I was like? It's kind of crazy. Remember that? Well, guess what God did for me? Those people are going to listen to what you have to say. Because oikos relationships, sharing your faith there is, is natural. It just makes sense. It's meaningful for you, and it's meaningful for other people. What about today? We see the word oikos used a lot in the New Testament. Is the, is the oikos concept still important? Does it still work today? Well, uh, in this book, uh, the, the writers talk about a study that was done where they went to 42,000 Christians, and they asked them this question. If you had to kind of just narrow it down and say, what was the primary thing that God used to bring you to Christ? What would you say that is? And so here were some of the different answers they got. Some people said, uh, I had a special need, and um, I went to the church, and they met that need, and just that really made me want to become a Christian. Uh, 2% of people said that's how it worked out for them. Some people said, I, you know, I don't know. I was, we were driving by the church one day, and we thought we should just go to church. And so we started going to church, and, um, and God saved us. Again, 2% of people out of 42,000 people said that's primarily the way that we came to Christ. There was another group of people who said, well, we started going to the church, and we didn't necessarily know the pastor, but we were listening to his teaching, and God really spoke to us. And primarily, just through that ministry, we came to Christ. 5%. People said that's how they came to Christ. Some people said, well, I was, I was at home one day and there was a knock on my door and I opened the door and there was, a, I didn't even know this person. And they were from a church down the street and they started sharing Christ with us. One percent of people said that that's, that's pretty much how they came to Christ. Uh, Sunday school, right? Uh, I went to Sunday school for a while and, uh, you know, the teacher was sharing Christ and over a period of time I came to Christ about four percent. Uh, people said I, uh, a friend invited me to a Billy Graham crusade, a Luis Palau crusade, and I went and uh, heard the gospel. And um, that, I would say that was the reason that I came to Christ. Kind of surprisingly, 1% of the people. Um, people said, well, there was, a, there was a program in the church, and we started going to that, just some, some event, some training thing. And uh, that's the reason we came to Christ, 2%. And then the people, so if you're doing ba- math, by the way, you, you're, you're figuring this out, but people who said, uh, well, the, actually, I may have given my life to Christ at a Billy Graham crusade, or, or um, you know, I, I may have done it at church, but I would say the primary reason I came to Christ was because uh, my mom was sharing her faith with me, or one of my kids was, or a coworker, and they just kept loving me and kept sharing Christ with me, and, and primarily that's the reason I came to Christ. 83% of people said, the reason I came to Christ was because there was a person in my life who was loving me and sharing Christ with me. In other words, even today, oikos relationships are still the most common path for people finding Christ. It's natural. It's personal. It's meaningful. In Matthew 5, 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says this. Now, in, in the same way, I want you to let your light shine and, and your light that he's talking about here is your life. It's, it's the way you live. Let your life, let your light shine before people that they may see your good deeds, that they may see the way that you live and, and glorify and praise your Father in heaven. Jesus is just saying, when people see God in you on a day in and day out basis, that's going to that's gonna help them come to Christ. When people see how you handle problems, when people see how God answers your prayers, when people see how you treat other people, 
when people see how you drive down East Street. I mean, that's just the kind of stuff that's going to cause them to want to come to Christ. Oikos. Now, when we talk about oikos at Gateway, we kind of break it down and say there's three ways that you can impact your oikos for Christ. Uh, The first way is to invest. That simply means that you find some people around you and you begin to invest your life into their life. You begin to love them. You you do a relationship with them. You, You get to know them. And the Bible's full of examples of that. Investing in unbelievers is one way we bring them into our oikos. Another is to inform. So at some point along the way, we need to let people know about the gospel. And so some of you could probably share about how there was someone in your oikos, and you just, you had this unique opportunity, and in a half hour, you got to sit down with them and share the whole gospel and lay it out for them. Some of you might be able to share stories about how you were able to share little pieces of the gospel with them over a three or four-year period, but you could do that because you had a relationship with them. Invest, inform, and invite is the last one. At some point, we need to give the people in our oikos a chance to respond to the gospel. So there's a lot of ways you could do that. You could, you know, ask them at some point, would you like to uh, invite Christ into your life? You might invite them to church uh, where they can come and hear the gospel and maybe an Easter service and get a chance to, to help them step across the line of faith. But investing, informing, and inviting are the way that we break it down. Today, we're going to focus just on that first one. We're going to talk just about the investing part of uh, introducing people to Christ, of investing in our oikos. And I want to read a story for you from Luke chapter 19. If you have your Bibles, you might open it up there. And if you don't, I've printed it in your notes for you, starting on the front page. And this is just a story uh, in Luke 19 uh, about Jesus one day. It says, "Now, now Jesus entered Jericho. So he's traveling along. And he was passing through, and there was a man there by the name of Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector, and he was very wealthy. And he wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed into a sycamore fig tree to see Jesus, but uh, to see where he was because he knew he was coming that way. Now, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and they began to mutter, Jesus has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. Let's pray for a moment. Father God, I just would pray for us as we look at this story, maybe a story we've, we've read many times, thought about, studied. But I believe that there's something that you want to say to us today. And I would just ask right now that, that your spirit would inhabit this place and that you would be our teacher today. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So, this week, I got to kind of pour through this story a little bit, think about it, and I basically walked out with, with three questions, and I've listed those questions on your notes at the bottom on the back. And uh, I want to just uh, ask you to consider those as I've been considering them for my life this week. Three questions. We start with these questions in verse one of our story. It says, now, Jesus entered Jericho, and he was passing through. And there was a man there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy, and he wanted to see who Jesus was. So, 
the, the first question I asked when I looked at this passage, because I like to basically study by asking questions, I asked the question, why did Jesus go to Jericho that day? Because there were at least 15 other cities nearby that he could have chosen that day to travel through. And See, I, I, I personally believe Jesus didn't do anything by accident. He had a reason, he had a purpose for going there. And in fact, the text kind of gives us some clues as to why Jesus went to Jericho that day. It says there was a guy there, and his name was Zacchaeus, and he wanted to see who Jesus was. Now, Zacchaeus was a tax collector, and we'll talk more about that in just a minute and what that means. But basically, you have to understand, tax collectors were the outcasts, were the scum of society to Jews back then, and uh, nobody would have anything to do with a tax collector but other tax collectors. And there was this guy who was traveling around named Jesus, and Jesus just seemed to love tax collectors. And he was a Jewish rabbi, and that was extremely unheard of. So undoubtedly, Zacchaeus has heard about this guy named Jesus, and he hears that Jesus is coming through town, and he wants to see this guy. Like, who is this guy, and, and what's this guy like? So he wants to figure it out. Now, the, the beginning of the story and why Jesus goes to Jericho is, quite frankly, it's answered at the end of the story. It explains what's going on here. The story ends this way. It says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. In other words, evangelism, reaching people with the gospel, is driving Jesus' agenda every day of his life. I would just ask you the the, the question, where does evangelism right now fit into your priorities? Where does it fit in? Maybe you're one of those people who would say, you know, my, my thing as a Christian is I'm really into worship. You know, I mean, I, I love to worship and I love to sing and I, I love to pray. And that's me. I'm, I, that's the thing that identifies me as a Christian. I'm, I'm a worshiper and I love to drive down the road and put in some worship music and drive with no hands. And it's just the thing I do. I'm a, I'm a worshiper, you know, and, and, and maybe you're one of those who are you're, you're like, I love to study the Bible. I mean, I like to get into the original languages and I like to outline it and study it and dig into it and memorize it. And, you know, I think God would say, obviously, it says in the scripture, that's, a, that's an important thing to do. You should do that. We talked a few weeks ago about how important knowing the word of God is when it comes to fighting spiritual battles in your life. Maybe your thing is holiness. You know, you're like, I, my goal is to be an obedient disciple of Jesus Christ and I'm looking to live a holy life and so that's my thing. That, that's my niche in, in Christianity. I just, I want to be a holy person for God. Or maybe your thing is service. You know, you're just like, I, I know Jesus said we need to serve one another, so for me that's important and that's the thing I focus on. And I, I think God would say all of those things are great. All of those things are wonderful. You should definitely want to do those. But, but here's the deal. Don't forget evangelism. If you allow any of those things to crowd out sharing Christ with other people, then you're kind of missing something very important, an important part of the Christian life. In fact, Jesus put it this way. He's talking to his disciples. You know this. He's kind of giving some parting words uh, as he's about to ascend up in heaven. He says, he came and has told his disciples, I have been given complete authority in heaven on earth, so you need to listen to what I'm going to say because I'm in charge. I want you to go and I want you to make, make what? Make disciples. I want you to go and make disciples of all the people. Now, where does discipleship start? Discipleship starts when we go and we help people cross the line of faith and give their life to Christ. That's where it starts. So if we're going to be committed to discipleship, that means one of the things that needs to be an important part of our life is finding people, as Jesus did, who don't know Christ yet, who aren't disciples, and helping them step across that line of faith. Now, in verse 3 in our story, it tells us this. Now, Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not 
because of the crowd. So whenever I read this passage, I'd always think about Zacchaeus and I'd always think about the crowd. And I'd think about Zacchaeus, the wee little man, and he's standing in the crowd and he's jumping up and down and he can't see over the crowd. How's he going to see Jesus coming down? So he has this idea. I'll go to this, this tree and I'll climb up in the tree and then I'll be able to see Jesus coming by. And we, we always think about how the crowd was an obstacle for Zacchaeus and certainly it was. But this week it really struck me that Zacchaeus wasn't the only one who had a problem with that crowd. You see, Jesus, he had a problem with the crowd too when you think about it. Think about Jesus' life. He's got, he's got 12 disciples, right? He's got these disciples who, who are uh, around him, who are needy, right? Who are demanding, who, who, who need attention all of the time. And then we're told he had kind of a bigger group of 70 who would travel around with him. Same thing, one at his time. And then sometimes there was hundreds, sometimes there were thousands of people and everybody wanted something. Some people wanted healing. Some people just wanted to, you know, spend some time with him. Some people wanted teaching. Some people wanted to, you know, solve some problem that he had. So here's Jesus. He's always surrounded by a crowd of people. So to me, it's interesting to think that Zacchaeus isn't the only one who's got this obstacle, the crowd. Jesus has this crowd. And it would have been very easy for this group to crowd out people like Zacchaeus. But Jesus didn't allow that to happen. And yet, maybe that's something that you can relate to. Maybe you, like Jesus, you, maybe you're thinking that your life is pretty crowded right now. You've got a lot of stuff, a lot of responsibilities, like Jesus had. You know, if, you're, if, if you've got a family... Uh, if, you, if you're married, if you've got kids, if you're living at home, uh, you've got some relationships going on, and those are, those are important. And you need to give those some serious time and, and invest in those. But you know how it can be. You've got a family, and then maybe you've got a job on top of that, or you've got school going on, and maybe you've got some home projects, you know, that you've got to give some time to, and, and you've got some other activities. And before you know it, you've got this full life. You got, and you might have a life full of really great stuff, Everything might be totally pleasing to God. But here's the problem. If there's no room for unbelievers in your oikos, that's a problem. Okay, that, that's a situation that's, that's out of whack. It would have been very easy for all the believers to have crowded out the unbelievers, but Jesus would not allow that to happen in his life. In Matthew 9, 37, Jesus is talking to his disciples one time. They were standing in front of this crowd of people, and, and it said that when Jesus looked over this crowd... It was as if he was looking at, at, at sheep that had no shepherd. And he looked at his disciples and he said this, that the harvest, he's talking about people who don't know Christ. The harvest is so great, but the workers are so few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. And what's interesting to me is what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, pray to the Lord of the harvest that people will want to come to Christ. That's not what he said. In fact, what he said is, that's not the problem. He said, what we need to pray for is that God will send out more workers into the fields. I almost get the picture like Jesus saying, I know how it is for believers. You can get so busy, so busy doing stuff, so busy in the church, so busy doing all that stuff with believers, which all can be great. But if if unbelievers, if people like Zacchaeus get crowded out, then you've got to do a little adjusting in your life. Sometimes before you can do one thing, you have to eliminate something else. And maybe for some of you today, that's where you are. You couldn't possibly make room for a Zacchaeus in your life right now unless you got rid of something else. Something else has got to go. In which case, I have some really, really good news for you. 
Anybody watch Lost? Besides me? Woohoo! Okay, so I admit, I like the show Lost, right? Here's the great thing about Lost. So it's over, so I just gained an hour every week, right? <laughs> that I can invest in the lives of real, actual people around me. And, and I gotta say this too, I've had a lot of people ask me this week, how did I like the ending? Everyone's asking me, how did you like the ending and what did you think? Here's just my, my take on it, okay? Uh, people are actually plugging their ears right now. So I take it you haven't seen the ending yet? <laughs> All right, I'll try not to blow it. Uh, I thought the ending was, it, it exceeded my expectations, all right? Because I had no expectations, all right? I had people coming up and I thought they were going to do this and answer this and answer this. And I'm like, I'm sorry, have you watched the show for six years? Because for six years, all they do is string you on and lead you on, am I right? They always ask more questions. Anyone who thought that the, that the series, that the end was going to wrap it all up, I'm like, were we watching the, sh- the same show? So for me, it exceeded my expectations because I had zero expectations that they, would, that they would answer anything. But that's kind of to the side. Here's, here's my point, all right? Lost was a TV show, and I'm not against entertainment. Entertainment can be great, but let's be realistic. It's a, it's a fictional story about people who don't exist on, a, on an island that doesn't exist with a smoke monster, thank God, that doesn't exist, and, you know, just all that kind of stuff. And I'm not against watching that kind of stuff because I watched it, all right? But my question is, are there, are there some losts in, in your life, some, some things that they're okay but you're allowing those things to crowd out Zacchaeus's in your life. And, and just imagine, imagine, for instance, that all of us just decided this week, for the summer, we're all going to take an extra hour every week this summer and invest in the Zacchaeus's around us. I mean, I'm just trying to think, how amazing would that be if we were to do that? So my question, my first question for you is this. You know, is there something crowding out your oikos right now that you could eliminate? What's the lost in your life that you could get rid of. I'm a pastor. I can't resist saying this. What's the loss that you can get rid of so you can invest in the lost? Huh? <laughs> yeah. What would that be? Is there something crowding out your oikos that you could eliminate? So the first thing I see in the story is, is that whole concept of, of the crowd challenging Jesus. But in verse 2, I want you to notice something else. It says, now there was this man, and his name was Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. And he wanted to see who Jesus was. So we're told that he was a chief tax collector. Now, something that you need to know about uh, how the Roman government collected taxes. It, it was really genius in some ways. When, um, when, when Rome would conquer a city or a state or a territory or a nation, and um, they would try to assimilate that, those people in that culture into the Roman Empire, they wanted to collect taxes to support everything that they were going to do. But they found if they, if they sent Romans in, to collect the taxes, that never went well. But if they could hire people who were part of that, that country, that city, that state, if they could hire them to collect taxes, that always went a lot better. So what they would do is they would go in and they would conquer territory and then they would divide it into taxable areas and then they would put those areas out to bid. And people could bid. They'd be like, well, I think I'll, you know, I want to collect taxes over in this area. And then what you would do is you would you'd put together a proposal and you might, I'm just pulling figures out of thin air here, but you might say, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to collect taxes in this area, and you would tell Rome, I'll collect a half a million dollars in taxes this year for you. And if you won the bid, and usually went to the highest bidder, or somebody who was politically correct, uh, connected, and if you won the bid, then at the end of the year, you had to pay Rome $500,000 in taxes. They didn't give you a salary. The way you made money was, 
anything that you collected above and beyond that contract, so say half a million dollars, anything above that, you got to keep for yourself. But, but, but now here's the tension. Rome didn't like it when there were uprising and, uh, and revolts and, and violence because the taxes were too high. So as a tax collector, you were walking a fine line. You needed to collect enough money to pay Rome and to support the kind of living that, that you wanted. That's what you did. Now, if you were a tax collector, of course, all the people you're collecting taxes from, they absolutely hated you. They despised you. And, and for the Jews who were collecting taxes from, from other Jews, you were not even allowed to attend the synagogues, the, the churches in the area. You were an outcast. No one was allowed to talk with you or associate with you, or any of that kind of stuff. Now, here's what we know about Zacchaeus. We knew that he was wealthy, so that means he was really good at his job. He was able to collect his taxes and make a lot of money on top of that, and he, and he managed to keep his job. Everyone knew I got wealthy, and everyone resented it. Zacchaeus was not the kind of person that you would take into your oikos. He was the kind of person that you would keep as far away from you as you possibly could. But when Jesus sees Zacchaeus, he sees him with completely different eyes. So Zacchaeus, it says, ran ahead and he climbed into this tree to see Jesus and since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, that is the spot where he could see Zacchaeus, it says that he looked up. So I love this story because the Jews have written him off. In fact, uh, Jewish rabbis used to talk about um, IRS agents, so to speak, as being people who were invisible to us. We, 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 we don't even see them anymore. So here's Zacchaeus, this invisible no one in a society. But Jesus sees him. Don't, you, you just can't miss the imagery here. Jesus sees what other people will not see. They will, they, they will not do it. I would just ask, does that possibly describe someone in your life? Maybe someone who's, you know, a sinner. <laughs> uh, they've done some crummy things. They've made some bad choices. And, you know, you've just written them off. They're invisible to you. You walk by them. You brush by them. You see them. But you don't see them. You don't see them the way God sees them. And they're up in a tree and they're watching you. But you don't even see them anymore. You're at home and you're out in the front yard and they're peeking out the shades. They're, they're watching you. They're looking at your light. But you've written them off. They're invisible to you. And that's a problem. When we don't see people the way that Jesus sees people. In verse 5, look at what it says when Jesus reached the spot. He looked up and he said to Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And now here comes one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. I love this. So he came down at once and he welcomed him gladly. And all the, all the who? People. So you have to picture this. All the people standing around. So Jesus walking down the street. Hey, Zacchaeus, how's it going, man? How does he know his name? They've never met. He's Jesus. He says, hey, come down out of the tree. We're going to go to your house today. And all the people, it says, I love this, saw this and they began to what? Mutter. Yeah. Jesus has gone to be the guest of a sinner, right? Right? That's what he's done here. So here are some of the things that people like to say about Jesus. By the way, if you read the Gospels, you'll, you'll literally read that people said things like this. Gee, have you heard about Jesus? When he goes to towns, he doesn't hang out with the religious people. He doesn't hang out with the, with the priests. He doesn't hang out with, uh, with uh, you know, uh, the religious people. You know what he does? He likes to find the sinners. He likes to find the tax collectors. Jesus, I heard Jesus has been seen in the company of prostitutes. What kind of person hangs out with prostitutes? Well, you know you know what kind of person hangs out with prostitutes, right? You know what kind of person 
hangs out with tax collectors. You know what scum they are. You draw your own conclusions about Jesus. People were saying things like, have you heard that when Jesus goes to parties, he likes to go to parties that have the open bar? Have you heard about that? He likes to go to the IRS agents because he knows they have the good stuff. And I've heard that Jesus has got a little, he's got a little drinking problem. He likes to tip him back a little bit too much. I've heard when he leaves those things, he's like stumbling down the street. I heard he's a drunk. I heard he has a serious problem. That's what people were saying. Heard of the Betty Ford Clinic? Jesus needs to go there, okay? He's got, he's got a problem. People were saying, have you heard about Jesus? He likes to go to parties with great big buffets. And I heard that guy can put down the shrimp like nobody's business. I mean, have you seen the guy's gut? It's like totally going somewhere because he's got, he's got a problem. This is the kind of things that people were saying about Jesus. I've wondered, I mean, come on, let's be honest. How, do you like it when people say things like that about you? Anyone? Because I don't. Do you think that that bothered Jesus? I just, for the life of me, can't imagine that it bothered him the way it would bother us. I can imagine that Jesus was like, oh man, I, you know, I gotta get a publicist because, you know, they're just like ripping me on the evening news and it's not true, I'm not a drunk. And I, I, I would imagine that Jesus, in, in one sense, just didn't care. He wasn't insecure that way. He wasn't focused on his street cred. It just wasn't important to him. He was focused on the people who were lost. That's where his focus was. So you've got the people who, who, who don't even see Zacchaeus. You've got the people who make fun of people who seek out Zacchaeus. And then you have Jesus. And that's my second question for you. Which attitude would you say best describes you? The attitude of, of the people or the attitude of Jesus? I would just wonder, is there a Zacchaeus in your life right now? He's kind of up in a tree, you know, and, and maybe, maybe he's a sinner. Maybe he's needy, you know what I mean? And maybe he's different, and you've just decided, if I don't make eye contact, that I won't have to spend time with him. You know, which attitude best describes you? That of Jesus or, or that of the people? Look in verse 5. I love again, it says, so, so Jesus says to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once, and he welcomed him Gladly. So notice who's taking the initiative here, all right? In fact, literally in the Greek, it, to give you a sense, when it says that G, uh, Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was, it doesn't mean that he wanted to see what kind of person he was. Literally in the Greek, all it meant was he wanted to see which one of the people was Jesus. That's all. He's like, I don't even know what he looks like. I just like to put a face to a name. That's all he was doing in the tree. So Jesus takes all the initiative here. And I, notice how he takes the initiative. First, he, he takes the initiative on Zacchaeus' schedule. So Jesus is walking down the street. He's got things to do. He's got people to talk to. He's got stuff. But he sees Zacchaeus up in the tree, and he stops right there, and he adjusts the schedule for Zacchaeus. And, you know, sometimes opportunities to extend our oikos and bring Zacchaeus into our oikos, sometimes that's going to be inconvenient, you know? You, you, you might be home, you've had a long day, you're at home, the phone rings, you look at the caller ID, it says Zacchaeus. You're like, oh man, if I answer the phone, dinner's going to be cold, this is going to go for an hour and a half. He's so needy, you know what I mean? Or maybe you're at, you're, you're at Safeway and you just got to pick up a few things and you're going down the aisle and all of a sudden you see Zacchaeus going the other way and what do you do? Do you're like, ooh, back out, so didn't, didn't see me or, hey, Zacchaeus, sometimes it's going to be inconvenient. But not only does he do it on Zacchaeus' schedule, I, I, what I really love is the fact that he does it on Zacchaeus' turf. 
So, so this is huge to me. Jesus doesn't say, hey, Zacchaeus, it's good to see you. Come on down. And uh, I'm doing a uh, Bible study on Leviticus 2 that will absolutely blow your mind at the synagogue at 3 o'clock. So, you know, come meet me there. Now, that, that could have been a great thing, and, uh, but that's not what Jesus does. Notice what Jesus does. Jesus says, hey, let's hang out at your house because that's where I know you're comfortable. And so he says, I'm just going to come down today and we're going to stay at your house. Now, again, this is kind of one of those things um, that may be difficult for us in our culture to relate to. But back then, if you were a Jew and you had somebody to your house for dinner or you went to someone else's house, that was, um, what that basically said to everybody was, uh, I'm good with this person. We're okay with each other, and we have a relationship, all right? It doesn't mean that you necessarily approved of everything that they did, but it, mean, it meant you were pretty close with them, and you accepted them on, on a certain level. Now, here's why it's important, because the Jews had rules back then that you weren't allowed to go, you weren't allowed to go eat with a Zacchaeus. You weren't allowed to go into his house. You weren't allowed, he wasn't even allowed to step foot in your house. You weren't even allowed to talk with him in public where people could see you. And your kids certainly couldn't date. That was completely out of the question. And so, so for Jesus to go to his house, I mean, that's huge. That's like this huge stamp of approval, if you will. And I, I love it. It kind of reflects, the Apostle Paul picked up on this strategy later. In 1 Corinthians, he says this, whatever person is like, I try to find common ground with him so that he'll let me tell him about Christ. And let Christ save him. Paul's just like, you know what? I try to find some common ground with other people. So if, if, if there's a Zacchaeus and I want to connect with him and he's into sports, then I'll, I'll get into sports. And if he really likes, you know, accordion polka music, then I'll, I'll, I'll try to get into accordion polka music, you know, because trying to find common ground. If he's really into cats, then, you know, I'll pray about it and think about it, you know. But the point is we're trying to make this connection here. And sometimes expanding your oikos and letting a Zacchaeus in is going to be uncomfortable for you. Maybe you don't like the way they vote. Maybe you don't like the music they listen to. Maybe sometimes words come out of, they have a vocabulary, it's a little different from yours. Or, or maybe you don't like the job that they have, you know? But notice Jesus doesn't say, Here, hey Zacchaeus, here's five things I need you to change, and then when you change those things, then I'll come over and have lunch with you. It's not what he does. You know, uh, I was thinking this week about Jesus going to Zacchaeus' house and like, how does, I, I don't know, how does that relate to us today? And, and here's what it made me think of. Over the years, I have been asked kind of pretty much the same question, literally hundreds of times from adults in this church. And a composite of all those would go something like this. Um, it would sound like this. Okay, I have a job, and at this job, there's a couple of people that I've been trying to lead to Christ, but we just really don't have any common ground, and I can't seem to break in to this individual or their group and, and find some common ground. And then the other day, they, on Thursdays after work, they like to go to Red Robin, and they like to go to the lounge, and to happy hour, and they'll, they'll knock back a few, you know, and have some onion rings. And, and, and the other day, they invited me to come with them. Now, I've been looking for a way to get in with them for a long time, and I, it's just, you know, and now they've invited me. So, so, pastor, the question I have is, would it be a sin for me to do that? Would it be a good idea? I, you know, and sometimes people will be like, I'm not going to drink. That's not the issue. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to go. Or they might even say, you know, I, I might have something. My conviction allows for that, but I'm not dumb. I'm not going there. I'm not going to get drunk. I'm not going to let anything other than the Spirit control me. But I'm just wondering, if I go and I'm, and I'm there, will that be okay? 
Now, here's what they mean when they ask that, okay? That usually, the, you, they're not asking, will God be really angry with me, right? Because they know better than that. If, if their motives are pure and they're not going to do anything stupid and they're not going to sin, they, they're, it's not God they're worried about. What are they really asking? They're saying, if I go there and somebody from church walks by and sees me in the lounge at Red Robin and they come and tell you, is there going to be a business meeting about me at church? That's what I want to know. Am I right? I mean, seriously, and that's interesting to me because we are way more afraid of what people are going to think of us than we are about what God is going to think of us. And I would just say, you know, my typical answer to that is we're not that kind of a church. We don't go to that place. That's not what we do. And I, I, I honestly believe that. But let me just say this. It's important to look for common ground, but you should never have to compromise or sin in order to make a connection. So for instance, if, if your buddies come up and go, hey, we're going to go to Red Robin and we're going to get completely, you know, s- just, just smashed. And if you come and get, you know, smashed with us, then we'll know you're cool, you know. Okay, that's just being stupid, all right? And that's not what we're talking about. If, if you have a situation, I used to be a youth pastor. I heard this several times. You know, if, if, if you start dating somebody and they say, hey, if you make out with me, I'll go to church with you on Sunday, just run, okay? You just want to get away from that. That's not what we're talking about, all right? We're talking about finding common ground with people. We're not talking about sinning. But, now, but here's the point, I guess. Everyone else thought Jesus was sinning. All right, so just be careful about that because... Jesus didn't care about what they thought, did he? He cared about the guy who was lost. Anyways, we need to wrap this up. So let's look at the, let's look at the story as it ends in verse 8. Now Zacchaeus stood up. So a little time later, they're, they're at the house, and Jesus spent some time with Zacchaeus. And we don't even know what happened in, in between. But Zacchaeus stands up and he says, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anyone out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. And then Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. Here's what I find so interesting about this story. We're not told how Jesus presented the gospel, are we? We're not told. So we don't know how he informs him. Uh, We know that he did. And we could read uh, tons of other stories in the gospels about different ways Jesus presented the gospel. We're just not told how he did it here. We're also not told how he invited Zacchaeus to step across the line of faith. Jesus had some really interesting ways of doing that with other people, but he, we, we didn't see that here. Here's the only thing we're told. Jesus invested in the life of this man. Now, we know it's important to inform, and we know it's important to invite, but when I read this, part of what I read is, is Jesus is saying, it's very, very important to invest. It's very important to love, all right? And if you invest in someone's life today, and you didn't get to the informed part, you shouldn't feel bad about that today. In fact, as I read the Gospels and and I look at how Jesus invests in other people's lives, I think if you love people and you just connect with them the way Jesus did, personally, just just my opinion, you're probably like 75% of the way there. If you love them the way Jesus loved them. Here's what we are told. We're told the result. Salvation. Zacchaeus was not saved because he promised to do good. We know that. Zacchaeus began to, his life began to be changed as a result of his salvation. So here's my last question for you, and we're done. Would you be willing to make room in your oikos for just one Zacchaeus this summer? Is there one guy around you, not a believer, he's been maybe watching you, maybe he works next to you at the office, maybe he lives across the street from you, maybe he lives in the house you live in, 
Is there one Zacchaeus around you? And quite frankly, as we've been talking this morning, you've realized he kind of has become, she has become invisible to me. I don't, I don't really see her the way that Jesus does. I don't know that I really care for that person right now the way Jesus does. I would ask you the question, would you be willing to set aside some time this summer, because you have some unique opportunities in the summertime, to make some room for one Zacchaeus this summer? Because I'm just imagining what would, what would this place, what would this community, what would this church, what would our lives look like if every one of us in this church decided this summer I'm going to do that. Every week I'm going to make an hour, two hours for a Zacchaeus that I haven't made time for before. What would happen if every one of us said, I'm going to do that? How would that change our lives, our families, our neighborhoods, our church, our community? So, that's my challenge to you. Let's pray together.